Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from ESPN, ESPN.com, Stephen Holder, he does join us. You know, it's funny. I want to start right here, and then we'll move all the way around. Um, I I had an emailer that kind of went all in still uh, questioning C.J. Stroud and just compare the type of rookie season he has had at that position compared to anybody else in a rookie season at that position you have seen. It is, if not standalone, it is nearly standalone the amount of success he's had. Yeah. <laughs> what What is he questioning? <laughs> Does he not like his hairstyle or uh, his outfit? I, yeah, I mean, yeah. what are we talking about? I think we got a long-term yeah. non-believer in Stroud and a long-term non-believer in Richardson. And I'll give you Richardson because we haven't seen enough, we think, but we haven't seen enough. But I, I don't know what else Stroud at this point can do. What I, what I really like about C.J. Stroud is – that rookies tend to throw interceptions. And that's the thing he did not do this year. I'm looking at it here. Uh, 23 touchdowns, which is impressive in and of itself, but whatever. We, there are a lot of touchdown passes in the game today. But the five interceptions, that is remarkable, like astounding to me, uh, just because that tells me, number one, that's a guy who sees the field, he has the vision. And he also can the reads quickly. You know, I, I think that is something that I was talking to was talking about someone or talking to someone about Justin Fields recently. And I and I said that was my critique was that that's my my reason for doubting Justin Fields is is he making the reads quick enough? I don't know. I mean, if you're talking about you know the whole Bears decision they have to make, you know what I mean? Um, in, in this particular case, this guy, I mean, he, he sees it, you know, and he sees it quick. He gets the ball out. Uh, I think his pocket presence is outstanding. Um, he, he has, he's still difficult enough to sack. Uh, 38 sacks this year, so that's a lot. But, but it's not like he makes it easy for you. I mean, he still has good pocket presence, feels the rush. Uh, the, the sacks were probably more a product of, of the protection than anything else. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I love the guy. I don't, I don't know what there is to not love. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. I, I had mentioned, too, at the start of the show, I was incredibly jealous uh, this weekend for a couple of different reasons. One was the type of crowd response they got. And obviously, I mean, it's been you know more than three decades with that level of success in Detroit for the Lions. That was really cool to see that environment from start to finish, but especially during the finish last night. And incredibly jealous of Houston because of what they're accomplishing right now when <clears throat> we all thought, Cleveland could be that type of mark, and that's exactly what we saw on Saturday late afternoon that Cleveland Browns team was for C.J. Stroud in Houston in a situation the Colts could have easily been in. By the way, Buffalo just going to put seven more on the board after a turnover by the Steelers. About to be 14 nothing first quarter Bills over the Steelers. Go ahead, Stephen. 
Yeah, you know, I, I would say if you go back, uh, I think, to the McAfee show um, maybe a week ago, uh, C.J. Stroud was on there, and he, he was talking about how – excuse me, he, he mentioned how he thought that the, the game in Indy was the loudest stadium he had played in, I, I assume in the NFL or college, I don't know, but even if it was just in the NFL – uh, that was a pretty remarkable thing to say, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, I don't think he's wrong there. That was that was so loud, that Saturday night game. It was so loud, and it was an atmosphere we haven't seen nearly enough of in the city, and, and to think <laughs> there could have been another one of those on Saturday night. You know, that yeah. that's the yeah. part that, that's kind of crushing if you're a Colts fan. You know, like, man, that could have been us. I'm sure that's what they're thinking. And, you know, that you want that. Those are those are very uh, fleeting moments. They're elusive. You don't get them all the time. And and Indy had another chance to have another one of those moments that that just have not been produced often enough lately. So I, I think that's where, you know, a, a little measure of additional regret comes in, you know, in, in that they lost that game. So anyway, um I'm sure everybody else had the same thought. Um, you asked me also about uh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, just I, I would say the other thing I would say is this: um, the the moment with Houston. I think this this entire season, frankly, I, I see. I'll add another thing: them having the ability to to really evaluate and assess and enjoy a rookie quarterback is another thing that as a Colts fan, you're probably jealous of because you didn't have that opportunity and you probably feel like you got gypped a little bit, you know, not anybody's fault. I mean, you got hurt and stuff happens talking about Anthony Richardson, Yeah, but it sucks, right? It, it sucks because that's the thing you were looking forward to this season. There's no doubt about it. They made the season enjoyable in spite of that to their credit, but it really does feel like, there was something missing this year. And it's funny. I, I talked to a lot of Colts fans and, you know, the attitude was kind of like, eh, whatever happens, happens. And it's because they felt a little less invested because they were really invested in, in the fate of the quarterback. And without him, there was definitely something missing. So I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. And, and the other thing about it is, and I think Chris even mentioned this to a degree, late last week is that while you feel good about the path this team is on, I mean, it's tough not to. I mean, you see some things certainly that we haven't seen around here in a long time for the good, but there's nothing still etched in stone. And unfortunately, we're not going to see an attempt at etching anything probably until November of next year. And and even though you have a, a season to where everybody is surprised, and I'm sure there's some happiness about how the regular season went down, you still have to think about that daunting task of a still wait-and-see process, even though I think the belief certainly is out there for most that the spot of quarterback is rightly filled here. Yeah, the, the thing I would say is that, you know, the, the reality of the NFL is that Things happen fast and windows they're open today and they're closed tomorrow. And so every, every bit of, of time and opportunity that you lose is incredibly valuable. So the Colts lost some real opportunity this year with Richardson getting hurt. And so next year, Quentin Nelson's a year older and Ryan Kelly's a year older 
and whoever else, you know, that we can add to that mix, you know, DeForest Buckner, you know, and, and some guys won't be back, you know, there'll be free agents that presumably will move on and the team won't be the same, you know? And so, uh, this was, uh, in, in retrospect, this was a pretty decent roster. Uh, you know, not a great roster, but a decent enough roster with, with good coaching that uh, it was good enough to, to be a playoff team, but they fell short. And so, anyway, I just look at Jacksonville, for example, right? I mean, we, we kind of crowned them last year, and we made a lot of assumptions. We were wrong. Now, they, they were out in front. They were well out in front. They dropped the ball. But that's just it. That's my point, is that nothing is for sure. So, and this goes back to that conversation you and I had about, I think it was you and I, uh, about, you know, whether we should make a big deal about the opportunity in front of them when it came to the playoffs. Right. And I said, yeah. I mean, look, this you don't have the luxury of acting like it's not a big deal. Well, I mean, Ballard <laughs> felt the same way from what I gathered in that presser. I think he, yeah, as, as he should. Yeah. As he should. Um, I mean, opportunities are never guaranteed. It's, it's the bottom line. So it is what it is. I mean, I, they did a good job, uh, but they had a great opportunity. And, again, the expectations before you change, uh, and they, they didn't grab that opportunity. Now, circling back to your original point, though, uh, I do think that that's the hard part, man. It's just, you know, that they had an opportunity that we didn't anticipate, and and, and the guy who probably could have taken them further just, you know, couldn't help them this year in Anthony Richardson. Uh, he is Stephen Holder of ESPN, ESPN.com, and the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Yeah, obviously we have not had a conversation since uh, both Anthony Richardson and Chris Ballard met with you guys late this past week. And I may have asked you this before. I can't remember. But I have brought this up a number of times. You think now going into this this reboot, the sequel of of Chris Ballard, and knowing who your head coach is, and liking it, and believing in it, have we seen a not so subtle? I, I guess will we still see a not so subtle change in philosophy on where you build a team and how you build a team from Chris Ballard? From from not just this point on, but I guess once you realize who you have as head coach and what is necessary, is that realization you think set into Chris Ballard now compared to how he used to think is the proper way of building a winning roster? I think the answer is we have to wait and see. I don't think we know. And and here's why I say that. You know, this is kind of a a different um and just, they're in a different place than, than they've been certainly in a long time and maybe ever, you know, with, with Chris Ballard, where they have this, this young rookie quarterback and this team that appears to be on the upswing. You know, he had it for a moment with, with Andrew Luck, you know, I guess maybe like one off season. <laughs> and then, of course, Luck walked out the door. So we really never got to evaluate the team that they, you know, or truly evaluate or accurately evaluate, you know, the team that had put together that 2019 run with Andrew Luck because he retired. So it's an opportunity for Chris that, that I think he, he hasn't been able to take is he has some, some relative continuity. Now, you know, who your coach is going to be, you know, who your quarterback is going to be presuming that, that he is who we think he is. He's still going to have some rookie ups and downs next year. Be patient. Uh, they're they're going to happen. But but they're proceeding like he's their guy, 
Anthony Richardson. Okay, so this is kind of a, a new place for Chris Ballard. I think when you do change the back every year, you don't have any continuity. You're not building a damn thing. You're just trying to plug a hole. And so, you know, you, you got a hole in the bottom of the boat and you're trying to plug it. And, and that is a very different approach to team building than, than having a quarterback you can build around who's literally 21 years old. Um, so it, now you can say that and you can admit that and acknowledge that while also saying I have issues with the way Chris Ballard builds the team. Like those two things can both coexist. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I think we can admit that the circumstances have been less than ideal, and we can also, if you if you choose, you can criticize and take issue with with how he has proceeded. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So I don't say this to to kind of give him a pass. All I'm saying, I'm just acknowledging that this is a different a, a different reality for Chris Ballard than than I think he has experienced in the past. Now, finally. It still remains to be seen whether he takes a more aggressive approach. Um, I don't think they're going to go crazy in free agency. What I do think they'll do is, and this is what they're good at, is, is attack those mid-level free agents. You know, the, who's this year's Nico Autry, for example, right? The, those are the guys they have had success with. And I'm fine with that because that's where you get the best value in free agency. They do that and then continue to build what they have, they have a chance to, to move forward. Well, clearly, they still need skill position guys offensively, yeah. notably a wide receiver. So the, the path of attacking that, is that done via mid-level free agency, or might you look at you know their first-round pick, something of that fashion, a way to get something that clearly they still do not have with this group moving forward? Well, this year with the first round pick, I, I'm a big proponent of being toward the best player that's on the board. And and I know everyone says that, but but they, they need talent everywhere. I mean, they're not they're not at that point where they can just say, We we need this and we don't need that. No, I mean I think they still need talent everywhere. Uh if you want to compete with the best, then you need elite talent. And you get elite talent in the first round. So so don't go this is just my perception. I think if you go into that thing restricting yourself to, you know, these two or three positions, I don't know if that's the way to go. I mean, if there's a great safety on the board, and I just say that completely arbitrarily, I just made that up. Uh, if it's a if it's a wide receiver, if it's a, if it's a tight end, if it's a if it, you know, even I don't know, it's certainly an edge rusher, whatever. I mean, would you say no to an absolute? the difference maker at any of those spots? I don't think we would. Um, so I think what they've got to do is address some needs in free agency, take the pressure off of you going into the draft so that you can just build talent. Uh, but, but I do think the, the idea or the, the concept you mentioned, though, is true, uh, particularly with Richardson you know, really hopefully uh, taking on his first full year as a starter. You need to have as much talent around him as possible and and those include guys who, who handle the football. Hey, obviously, in the secondary, that is a major need moving forward. Where would you place the level of need still? I mean, we're talking about doing things that they had only done twice in terms of sacking the opposition's quarterback 
you know, in the past, you know, 30 plus years, nearly 40 years, whatever. Um, is that still a need edge rush to you still a need? And you know, how do you look at it defensively uh, to you in terms of what is most necessary, whether you attack that again, free agency wise or through the draft? So it's interesting. I, I actually, like it would be fine if they, it would be great if they had some kind of freak edge rusher, you know, like a, I don't know. I'm watching the Steelers here, you know, a, a TJ Watt. I mean, you know, they don't grow on trees, but I'm just sure name out. Right. Uh, sort. That would be great. But, but I will say this, they, they did a, a fantastic job of generating a pass rush with a, you know, with, with sort of a, a group effort a by committee approach. We, we thought they would do that. We thought that would be what it would take. You know, we said that in the preseason, this is going to be a little bit of a, a by committee pass rush because we we didn't anticipate them having you know some sort of 12 13 14 sack player and they did not but but i i, I think we couldn't really appreciate the pass rush like we could like we should have because the back end was bad and i think that's the, that's the bottom line i think that was the bigger problem for me sure again if, if there's a if there's a way to get one of those guys who's who's just a a freak that you can't block Sure, sign me up. But I'm just saying in terms of, of the defense functioning and being more functional, it would have been more consistently functional if they had some reliable assets on the back end. I'll say this, at least Chris Ballard, I mean, he acknowledged it. He didn't try to duck it. He did say that he decided to go young in the secondary. I disagree with it then, and I disagree with it now. That's on him. Yeah. Um, he has to own that. He did own it. And, and I think if you want to be a team that goes out and competes with that roster of quarterbacks you're going to play next year, then you better get off your tail and you better do something about that secondary. That's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's a bigger issue than the edge rush. Although the edge rush, again, they don't have a single guy that, that, you have, that keeps you awake at night, but collectively they're pretty good. Yeah, it's funny too. You mentioned that because he, he, he owned, you know, that secondary being his choice and, uh, the thing you look at it as, you know, media member or a fan, that is the major difference between, you know, going to the postseason in this case and not considering what, what Stroud and Collins did against them in that final regular season game. And it's it's a continuation of kind of a, a frustrating history with, with some that some fans have with Chris Ballard. I mean, there have been past seasons where at the end of those seasons we've we've looked back and we've said and, and kind of reflected about how Ballard didn't address like the offensive line depth or something. And boom, sure enough, comes back to haunt them. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember what it was in 2022. I guess it was everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, I mean, he, but yeah. he, I think he, he, I'm not going to say he checked out, but at the moment, Jim Irsay said, all right, this is me, this is Jeff Saturday, which was clearly against any yeah. level of his wishes. There was, there was some saltiness and some rub going on without question. Well, but just, you know, in terms of the, yeah. the context of this conversation for, you know, just in terms of the, if you want to call them blind spots that, that Chris Ballard's had over the years, he does tend to do that where he, he either invests too much faith in, in a particular position group or he 
Um, he just kind of, I don't want to say wings it because that's, that's disrespectful. He's not winging it. He just, he takes some liberties, you know, and, and that can go either way. And I thought this year they, they knew that they had a, a tough situation. Stephon Gilmore asked, Isaiah Rogers gets popped for gambling. So they're already down. The chips are down from the beginning. Um, you know, you could have gone out and found this year's Rodney McLeod. I don't know. Just you know, throw out a, a yeah. guy who, yep. who helped them a, a year ago. Granted, their, their team was terrible, but I thought you could, you could look back to 2022 and you could see how uh, a veteran safety like that could have really been huge for them this year. Instead, uh, they, they're already young secondary. The problems were compounded by the injuries they had, and they didn't have any other options at that point. And I, and I think that could have been mitigated had they done something. Um, instead, they had to do things like move, you know, Ronnie Harrison, you know, from linebacker back to safety, which he was not supposed to play. You know, th- that's, that's bad in, in advance of a, of, a, of a playoff game, basically, essentially a, a game and ultimately the, the AFC South. That is not where you want to be. And that cost them the game, period. Was, um, was Chris's admission this past week of, you know, obviously going young in the secondary, uh, secondary that being costly, did that save Gus Bradley's gig going into next year? I think it has to be taken into account. I really feel strongly about that. Like, I'm not, like, defending Gus Bradley. I'm not endorsing, put it that way. I'm not endorsing Gus Bradley one way or the other. I mean, I'm kind of agnostic. I I, I think it's workable. I mean, there are there – are, there's a conversation to be had about, about the scheme and, and the philosophy behind the scheme. But if you want to talk about the performance of the defense, just just bottom line, performance of the defense, um, if you're okay with, with him philosophically, we know Chris Ballard's okay with him philosophically because he wanted him to stay. And I can, I can only assume that, uh, that Shane Steichen is, is as well. So if you're okay with it philosophically, then you have to think about, okay, what did we ask him to do? Well, we asked him to – to go out there and, and function with a secondary that was at times practice squad level. Okay. Um, that's harsh, but it's true. Okay. And so he, what did he, what else did he do? He generated more sacks than any Colts team since the Mayflower. I mean, I give him some credit for that. Right. Uh, they were, they were usually pretty good against the run, which is, you know, an area that you always want to look at as well. So I think on the whole, if you're looking at it in, in segments, you can say, okay, pretty good there, pretty good there, really bad here on the back end. Um, what if you improve the personnel there? Can, can he bring that unit up to snuff as well? Maybe. I think maybe he can. And, and it would have a direct impact on the pass rush and an already good pass rush I think would have more impact on quarterbacks. Stephen Holder of ESPN's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So there's been flirtations, interviews, so on and so forth, interest back and forth in the past with Ed Dodds. Is this a hiring cycle in which maybe finally he makes a jump? I have a theory that <laughs> that Ed Dodds isn't sure he wants to be a GM. I have no idea. He didn't tell me this. 
but I feel like if he if he wanted to be a GM by now, I feel like he could have been. Uh, he has removed himself from searches on a couple of different occasions, at least. And and I know that there are other situations where he he may or may not have uh, taken an interview when there was a request or you know what have you. So. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. This as an observer, I've wondered whether whether he really wants to do it. The other thing about Ed is that he's he's very much he's very raw. Like you know, he's going to call it like he sees it, and not everybody loves that. I, I think maybe he's brutally honest. I wonder how that plays in interviews. I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm just saying sometimes maybe owners aren't ready for that. You know, I don't know. Um, it, it is interesting, though, that that he had he came to Indy as kind of this this guy who was seen as the next big thing, and you know it's been seven eight years, and and there's been annual interest in him, and it hasn't no one's pulled the trigger, or either he hasn't pulled the trigger. So I don't know. Um, it, it'll be interesting. I, I have no idea, but I would say he, he did interview with the Raiders, I believe, last year, I think, and. Uh, I think he had a lot of questions coming out of that interview and I think had maybe some, some uh, hesitation about moving forward with the Raiders. So maybe things have changed uh, based on, you know, some, some events that have unfolded there over the past year. Yeah, I believe the, the interest out there reportedly has been with the Raiders and then with the Chargers and the Panthers. And you often wonder – in these situations with the general manager, if that's the gig you want to jump to, especially your first, you probably would want to make your own coaching hire. There's a lot that uh, goes into that both ways. Hey, Stephen, before I let you go, um, I do want to ask you, have you heard anything new regarding the present health of Colts owner Jim Irsay? I have not. Um, it's it's certainly distressing. I would agree. When I agree. You hear – uh, when, when at any time a team puts out a statement like that, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I certainly think my reaction to it was that okay, this is serious. Um, I, I'm not suggesting what the outcome may or may not be. I have no idea. I'm just saying uh, that's a pretty aggressive step to take. I think um, you know this is not this is not a you know just the, the flu or something. I mean, I don't think you have to put out a statement to the media or something minor. The other thing I would say, and, and this, I've said this already, so I'm not breaking news here, but um, I, and I know this is true for you too, I have not laid eyes on Jim Mercy in quite some time. Yeah, It's been a long time. So I have many questions, uh, but above all, I hope he's okay, and I hope we see him soon. Yeah, I mean, it goes, I think I mentioned this to you and, you know, some of our uh, uh, others out there that uh, will talk on occasion, you know, privately that I, December the 11th, I think, was was going back. And I mean, it's been well over a month now, has it not? Oh, easily, yeah. I mean, I I, I even went back and looked at, um, I think I had this conversation with Query on the other show yeah. last week. I went back and, and looked at messages because you know a lot of us in town do mercy and converse with him and and so i went back and i looked and i was like man i haven't gotten anything from this guy in a long time or has he responded to my last messages and and that was uh my last message from him was well over a month ago so uh take that for what it's worth very 
um, you know, just anecdotal, I know, but, um, but combined with the fact that we haven't seen him, the statement, everything else, um, yeah, a lot of concern, I would say. Right there with you. Stephen Holder of ESPN, ESPN.com. By the way, inside the five, you got first and goal, and Mason Rudolph throws an interception. 14 nothing. Bills, second quarter oh, in Buffalo. Well, you're, you're a few seconds ahead of me, so I thought they were going to score. <laughs> I didn't mean to, didn't mean to spoil it for you right there. So, yeah. No, but listen, they got no shot. Man, that was their best shot. Okay, that was their yeah. best shot. Yeah. Now, like this, you thought they, they get that score, they hang in. Now, it's – Pretty reasonable, but there's going to be no hang-in factor here after that. That's tough. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I always appreciate you, man. See you soon. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. And on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline in Salt Lake City, Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers TV, is with us. The roughest, they say, of the back-to-backs. Mountain time zone to mountain time zone. And I, I wish, honestly, I wish they would have played in Salt Lake City yesterday and Denver today, but you didn't get that wish. Now, is it as tough on you, the broadcaster, as it is the players? Well, John, I think one of the unusual parts about this one was you went from Atlanta to Denver, and it sometimes it takes you a day or two just to get acclimated to the time zone, but then it felt all out of whack on Sunday because it was an afternoon game and it was the first one of those this season. So I kind of spent the entire day Sunday trying to figure out what time it was and what time the pregame show was, what time I needed to be on the bus. And then when, when the team actually finally landed in Salt Lake City, it felt like it was about midnight. In reality, it was only uh, about <laughs> 9 o'clock. And so uh, I've not felt the effects of the actual altitude. That's something you'd have to ask the players. But I just had a workout, got a workout in in the uh, – uh, on the treadmill, and I'm feeling good, and hopefully the, the team has some energy for this second half of the back. Do you work out on the road often? Yep, I'm in a 41 treadmill challenge, so the goal is to do a, a 5K at every single hotel that we're in, and so far I've got perfect attendance. Today was the hardest one because I had a lot of things to do, and then I got the request to join your show, but luckily I had enough time to fit it all in. <laughs> now, now who else is in this competition? Oh, it, it, it's just me. I'm the one that oh. needs it. And then uh, I send a photo to my family on the group text just to let them know that I'm actually uh, living up to it. But uh, I got to get in a little bit better shape. And so this wasn't a New Year's resolution. It was a new season resolution. But so far, so good. So um, does Denary work out on the road, too? I know he's a big Orange Theory guy, isn't he? I think he does CrossFit. But that's oh. just when he's at home. I, oh, I've okay. yet to see him in, in the uh, workout facilities on the road. But again, I, I've got more to lose than him. So well, he's probably doing just fine with what he gets at home. I, it has to be difficult, especially on a, a lengthy road swing like this. I mean, you're eating out all the time. I don't know. I, how do you gauge? That has to be tough. I don't know how you gauge that. Yeah. And then you've got the plane after a game, there's a nice spread. So you get some food there. You, you eat on the plane and it's midnight. Um, it is challenging and you've got to, 
Uh, the other thing that's a little underrated, too, this is a 12-day road trip, and if you work out five times, that's five sets of sweaty shirts. So by the end of the trip, uh, you're ready to come home for sure. <laughs> well, and I mentioned this, just for the sake of the matchups, I don't know if you agree with me. I had, had talked about, I, I wish Utah would have been last night. And again, Utah's won five straight. Eight of nine, much different than what we saw back on November the eighth at Cambridge Fieldhouse when the Pacers beat them. But uh, maybe just because I, I don't know if I'd call it. I guess I would call it easier than Denver because you know what you're going to get in Denver. There's still a little bit of question. I guess what you're going to end up getting with Utah in a game with no Halliburton, as it turned out, no Neesmith. I, I wish the the venues, the games, the destinations would have been flipped. Yeah, I guess you could look at it both ways. The one thing I'll say is when you're going to play the world champions and you've got Bruce Brown getting his ring, and even though you don't have Tyrese Halliburton and you don't have Aaron Neesmith, there's a little extra juice to the game and to the atmosphere. So I guess if you have that on the second half of the back-to-back, maybe that helps. Now you're fatigued. Now you're coming to Utah. You're playing a team, and this is tough just from the mental perspective. You destroyed them at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, and if you think it's going to be like that, it might be rough tonight because the Jazz are just a completely different team. And the other thing, uh, you, you know you don't have Halliburton. Aaron Neesmith's questionable, and now Bruce Brown is questionable. Mm. And meanwhile, you look at the Utah Jazz injury report, and anyone that is of significance for them is pretty much available and healthy. So it's a tough matchup. It's a challenge. The one thing that I'll say, no matter what happens, is what the way the Pacers played from you know December 26th until Friday night, it did give them a little bit of a cushion. That's not to say you want to give up games, but – where you were sitting like eight games over 500, knowing this January schedule is so difficult, it did give you a little bit of a buffer if you encounter some difficulties on this trip. So Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers TV, Salt Lake City tonight, the destination. It is the Pacers and the Jazz, the second of a back-to-back. Go back to yesterday for a moment. I mean, you know what you're going to get uh, against you know Jokic. You know what you're going to get against Murray. Now, Porter Jr. is really good, but I thought he was the difference in that game because he was an offensive constant, right? Whereas you had foul trouble and Murray, but I thought the constant was Porter Jr. in that game yesterday. Agree? I agree. It's what makes that team so difficult. And and Rick Carlisle mentioned maybe it's in terms of five-man ratings, one of the best starting groups in the NBA. I would say maybe you compare Denver and and Boston favorably if they're both at full strength and and having a five-man combination where everybody can really contribute and do a variety of things. You're so focused on Murray and Jokic that sometimes you have to at least give a little bit of space to Porter Jr., But from what I've seen, when he's been healthy and the Pacers have played him in his career, I mean, he's lights out from outside the arcs. Health has always been the big key for Michael Porter Jr. But when healthy, he seems like the perfect fit. And he obviously helped that team win a championship last year. And it was one of those games where I agreed exactly with what Rick Carlisle said afterwards. No faulting the effort. They played hard. It was a game that was right there for the taking with about six minutes left. And under the circumstances, that's all you can ask for. But it's maybe asking for a little bit too much as currently constructed to go take that from Denver in their building. Uh, when you're trailing by six, you just almost have to pay, play perfect down the stretch, and the Pacers just weren't able to do that. Yeah, that was that that possession. Miles had a straight on look for three that I thought, all right, if he makes that right there, things might have been different. Yeah, I mean the, the entire game they were just hanging around, hanging yeah. around. And if Tyrese Halliburton was healthy, you would have felt great about the opportunity to go and steal one but they just couldn't really make that play offensively. And they're not as good offensively, obviously. It's not any breaking news 
without Halliburton. So you've got to get it done on the defensive end. They were able to force turnovers. They were able to crash the glass. Those are two things that as long as Tyrese Halliburton is out, they're going to have to do to be successful is force turnovers and get some putbacks and second chance points. And and I think what also gets out of whack, and we talk about the scoring and the distribution of a guy that's an elite level player like Halliburton, but the timing's just off. Because you know, Bruce Brown, Andrew Nimhart, the timing of them with the ball on high ball screens or dribble handoffs, it, it's just different. And you can tell these guys, it takes them maybe a tenth of a second to consider what they're doing. Whereas with Halliburton out there, it's just, all right, if I'm here, this is where the ball is going to be. I mean, it's like a puzzle that's put together, but certainly is without a significant piece with Halliburton. Those are two of the offensive things I think you can see without him that at least stand out to me. That's a really good point, and let's evaluate the last week since Tyrese Halliburton was injured. The Boston game, you had a little bit of that that backup quarterback boost when a quarterback is injured, and then at the end of the game, the second half, the backup comes in and, and everyone plays great. You got that win. You played Washington. Okay, well, they are one of the worst teams in the league, so you just had to do what you do with that group. But then the last two nights, even with the win in Atlanta, there were some times during that game where you kind of wanted to scratch your head because it was a little sloppy at that point. Rick Carlisle, uh, despite what was a great performance, 41 assists, there were a ton of turnovers and mistakes, and there were times during the game where he was using a timeout to stop a, a 6-0 or a 7-0 run. And you saw that rear its ugly head a little bit on, on Sunday. T.J. McConnell's a great change of pace point guard. He's good in, you know, four to five to six-minute stretches. Andrew Nemhart has been injured a lot of the year, so he's been, been unable to get into any real flow consistently extensively. And so that will be the challenge for the rest of this trip. And then as long as Tyrese Halliburton is out, is get some of the clunkiness out of there, yeah. take better care of the basketball, have a little bit better flow in the offensive game. So Jeremiah Johnson joins us. Absolutely right about that. And another example was Jordan Warren now getting some clock, and he looked a half uh, a step, maybe a full step behind. And, you know, it makes sense because he rarely plays. And now all of a sudden he's thrust out there, and you can tell sometimes he was not in the spot where teammates expected him to be. Yeah, there's been so many times this season, though, you've seen the end of the game, a five-man combination that you did not expect, and that has been you know, Rick Carlisle riding the hot hand, a group that had been playing well together. But when you have a guy that hasn't been playing much at all and he had a good game, I believe it was against Washington, and you want to give him the opportunity. And here's the other thing that he does. He does give you an offensive spark. He's a scoring threat whenever he gets the ball. But then just that flow and maybe that clunkiness that you mentioned earlier – that's going to be something that will come with time. And so we don't know about Aaron Neesmith right now. We don't know about Bruce Brown. Those are primarily backcourt players. Tyrese Halliburton's out. But, but Jordan Warwick could be someone that then moves into a wing playing time situation. And so you hope he can get into a little bit better flow. Um, he had a shot or two there in the fourth quarter that if he would have knocked those down, similar to the one that you mentioned of Miles Turner, yep. things could have gone differently. And, you know, for a guy like that, you feel for him because – there's probably so much pressure on him when he gets that opportunity. He played well against Washington, but this would have been even a bigger stage and a bigger chance to prove you know, who he is and what he's capable of. And then when a shot doesn't go down, maybe you're pressing a little bit harder the next time, and he doesn't know when the next time he's going to get his number called. Yeah, you're right. It was off that Obi Toppin steal to where he was kind of – he was yeah. – indecisive I guess about you know go to the basket or shoot a float or something like that that was the moment I think you're talking about that was pivotal I felt in the fourth quarter yesterday 
Yeah, and again, you credit the Denver Nuggets and Jokic. Sometimes you watch him and you watch for maybe four or five minutes and you say, what's the big deal? And then all of a sudden you look down and he's 12 for 13 from, from the field and he has the nine assists. And even though in Denver they like to say that he doesn't get any respect from the officials, he certainly – uh, manages to ask for calls quite frequently. And I don't know, I, I feel like he gets enough respect as it is. So that's still a team. I look out west, I have a lot of respect for the Timberwolves and the Thunder, but those are still young teams. Probably if you ask me right now, uh, that, that Denver group, if they can fortify the bench a little bit. And that second unit is a lot of guys you haven't really heard of. And, and last night or yesterday, I should say, their second unit didn't give them a lot. It was a lot of heavy minutes from the starters. If they could bring in another guy or two off the bench, I would say they've got a really good chance to, at the very least, be back in the finals. I had told you this yesterday during the broadcast. I, I did not realize, and I, I know this, I know all NBA teams, certainly to a level, do a lot of crying. I had no idea Denver cried after every single call to the level in which they do. And I still, I'm trying to figure out, DeAndre Jordan, why, why was he so pissed? He just looked like he got out there and he was mad. And certainly, I, I forget which official it is, but he is no fan of that particular official because all of that ire was directed at him before he got tossed. It was. I mean, he comes in the game and he sets the screen, and I felt like he must have thought he was targeted because he got an offensive foul and then it happened again almost immediately. Yeah, he was moving, too. Game. It was a good call. He was moving. At least one of them for sure. The other one was 50-50, but that's a call that you see a lot in the NBA. And it wasn't necessarily T.J. McConnell overreacting or flopping. It's just a case of a guy built like a wall and T.J. McConnell running into him. He's going to react a little bit. And so it's going to show if you move into uh, the defender a little bit. I agree with you. I, I think for the last few years, Denver's been trying to get some respect and they've been a little not happy with maybe the national attention they get. You turn on the shows nationally and everyone talks about the Warriors and Lakers and they don't talk a lot about the Nuggets, but they got their championship last season. So I feel like they should probably move on from that storyline just a little bit, but if they want to play with a chip on their shoulder, it benefits them. And again, you're right. A lot of people complain. Sometimes it's gamesmanship. Sometimes it's to get a call at the other end. And I didn't even realize watching, but Rick Carlisle did point out, in the postgame press conference, about a 14-minute stretch where Denver did not get a foul called against them. So maybe it worked for them. So Jeremiah Johnson's got Pacers TV tonight, of course. You get the Pacers in Utah against the Jazz as they continue this Western Road swing. You called it, and I thought it was accurate, clunky. And I think you got clunky performances for those in for Tyrese Halliburton yesterday, whether we're talking about Nimhart or McConnell, they both had moments to where you go, okay, that's good, but I, I thought clunky was an accurate description as you described the team. I think also it was accurate to describe those taking the place of Halliburton yesterday. Yeah, I mean, to beat Boston, to win then in Was or against Washington and to win in Atlanta is a best-case scenario in the immediate aftermath of losing Tyrese Halliburton. The realistic view moving forward is you now just want to, um, you know, this is me talking, this is obviously not the players or the team, but can you win about every other game? Can you go about 500 from this point forward now until Tyrese Halliburton returns? And if you can, you're in a much better spot than you were last season when Halliburton was injured. It's tough to project and, and to give you a date of when he might come back. And with each game that you play without him, some of that clunkiness will go away a little bit. But I do think it's important to state and to realize, you know, just we've been putting some lines in, you know, the, the, the practice on the 19th, the Christmas day from that point forward. But 
But since Christmas, and Halliburton's been a big part of that, they're 9-2 and two with losses to only the Celtics and the Nuggets, two teams again, if I had to, to say right now, might be the two teams in the NBA Finals. So you've, you've weathered the storm early, at least in the year in a challenging schedule, and then early in the Tyrese Halliburton injury. Now the road trip continues. This is, a, this is a really challenging situation and game tonight, so it will not be easy. But can you, can you figure out a way on this six-game trip to come home three and three? I think that would be a, a really good accomplishment and would set them up well for the time that you can then hope to welcome Tyrese Halliburton back. I'm not going to hold you to anything here, but certainly you're close to him, and he's a part of that team. How does Halliburton look? coming back from this injury, from the times where you see him, you know, getting a slight workout into just his overall reaction about dealing with with this right now. How does it look to you? Is it, let's just say, for example, is it more favorable to what you know now than it was when that injury initially occurred last week? Yeah, let's think back to what we were thinking as we went to bed Monday night and woke up Tuesday morning and we were anxiously awaiting the news of the MRI. Now, that's just a week ago. And so you get what seemed like a very favorable report. And then you, you had a week at home where you didn't really see him or get a chance to talk to him. But I was surprised, and I shared you know the video on social media on Friday at the Pacers shoot-around in Atlanta of him shooting. Now, it was nothing extensive, and it was by design to just get some shots up. They were almost set shots, although uh, you know not that much different than the way he shoots his outside shot, the mid-range variety. But then also to see him on Sunday in Denver come out before the game with, you know, the building had a lot of fans in it when he was doing his workout on Sunday. So he's not trying to hide anything. He's trying to take advantage of the times to get little by little, more improvement, more things done. I wouldn't go as far as to say anything that I've seen him do has been working up a significant sweat or, you know, an extensive workout. But I'll be honest, I, Friday shooting, I was surprised he was able to do that out on the court before, as early as he was, considering that it happened late on Monday night. And that was Friday morning that I saw him in Atlanta. So we're not going to play the, you know, every day, give us a timetable. The team says when he returns from the road trip, which would be next Tuesday, so a week, a week from tomorrow, they'll take another look at and see where things are. And, um, but, again, it's better than I thought it would be. Every time I see him out there shooting and smiling and being happy, it does feel like it's it's the, the team definitely dodged a bullet, and I think that's the internal feeling as well. It's uh, Jeremiah Johnson with us. Regarding Utah, I mentioned that they are much different than when we first saw them at Gambridge Fieldhouse going back to early November. Uh, we know about marketing. Uh, he's their top scorer. Jordan Clarkson is always kind of a, a spark plug offensively wherever he is in the NBA. But here's what stands out to me. It is the number of players that they have with 30-plus starts this season. I mean, or, or I should say the number of – I guess I should say the number of players they have with starts this season. seems like they've been testing out a lot, and maybe to this point – they have found a little bit of an answer over this five-game win streak and eight of their last nine. Yeah, I'm always curious the team performance compared to what the front office goal and expectation was for the season. And last season, they started out really strong. All of a sudden, you thought a team that was maybe going to be in the lottery was going to be in the playoffs. And then towards the end, they were back to where maybe you expected. This season, I think they were willing to see how good they could be acquiring John Collins was a significant move to add a veteran. And you still have guys like Olenek and Clarkson and Markkinen that may not be part of – I mean, Markkinen, I think, would be. I'm not sure about the others, but guys to be part of 
your future build towards a playoff appearance. And so they had a lot of injuries. They had, as you mentioned, a lot of guys get some starting opportunities. And I think they're a well-coached team. So their depth is going to be better in this game tonight than the Pacers saw from the Denver Nuggets because they've got a lot more above average, I would say, NBA players and not a team built built around three or four stars like Denver. So that'll be an interesting matchup because without Halliburton, that's kind of how – I view this Pacers team, that they've got eight or nine guys that are really good and that can give you 15 to 18 points. And what we've, what we've seen in the last two games is seven to eight in double figures, nobody with, with 20 points. And you'll see some similarities, I think, with Utah. They do have their, their all-star available, though. That's Lowry Markkinen. And for as much as the Pacers saw him in Cleveland and in Chicago and in the Central Division, he seems to be a completely different player in Utah. And he's someone that I – probably would begin any plan or scouting report against. And then as soon as, as soon as Jordan Clarkson checks in, he started a lot at the beginning of the year. It seems like he could be sixth man of the year type of candidate for the next three or four years if he stays in that role because he'll check in the game five seconds in. If he's open, he's probably going to shoot it. So you got to be aware of wherever double zero is when he checks in. I don't know if it's the next game or not, but after Utah, of course, you guys fly out to Sacramento, play Sacramento and the Kings on Thursday. Did you see Mike Brown last night regarding the uh, the laptop and the foul calls? It it always makes me wonder with that initial reaction how much that's going to help. I, I'm assuming that Sacramento plays again between now and on Thursday, but I kind of wonder if that, besides getting him fined, which it will, if that's going to help the situation out in that next game. I had the same thought, and I immediately looked at the Sacramento schedule last night after I saw that. And if it is a positive or a good news situation, they are in Phoenix tomorrow night, take on the Suns, while the Pacers will be watching that game from Sacramento. Nice. And will have a chance to rest up a little bit. But And the other benefit, and they often talk about this, is they were on a long road trip where they went east. They're venturing back closer to the west. They wrap up their trip in Phoenix. It's the first game back home for them from that trip. So hopefully they're just a little bit rusty. Hopefully all of the makeups, if they happen, uh, come tomorrow night and then the Pacers will get a chance. But uh, this is tough because Utah and Sacramento are two teams. They're not the first three or four that you mentioned in the Western Conference, but they might be up there in the top three or four in the entire league, to me personally, of home court advantages. And so you've got Utah tonight. It's, it's a different kind of court. It's a crowd that's super into the game as long as Utah is playing well which they've won five straight. And I don't think there's any building in the NBA as loud as what Sacramento has when they're playing well. And, you know, Tyrese Halliburton will not play, but Buddy Heald is uh, likely to play. And he will get uh, the ire of the crowd in Sacramento. So even though the Pacers will be rested, this is a tough two-game stretch. And, and, uh, you know, I still will maintain what I said at the start of the trip and said just now. If you get to three and three on this six-game trip, I think you would take it and be very happy. No, JJ, it's about survival with this thing without Halliburton. I mean, it really is. And you, know, you did what you needed to do at the start in Atlanta, and you had your opportunities. I, I didn't mind the way that they played. They just uh, didn't hit shots down the stretch, and obviously Denver did. But I'd be interested to see what they look like tonight. And here's another one, too, I think, to circle, and not leaving out Sacramento, but you know, coming off of that embarrassing home loss back in November to Portland, you get Portland on the second 
of, I believe, a back-to-back. That's a Thursday and Friday, so it's a Friday in Portland. So if you didn't have much motivation already, the fact that that team did to you what it did earlier this season might be a little bit on a Friday night in Portland later on in this trip. I would agree with you. You uh, you don't want that to happen again. I think that was a little bit of the extra motivation that helped the team get over the hump and get that win against Chicago after Christmas because the Bulls had defeated you earlier in the season. And, you know, you mentioned the game in Atlanta and then the Denver game. You shot 67% from the field against Atlanta. You dropped down to 47% against Denver. You want to be somewhere in the middle consistently. I mean, that would be great if you could do that. But even just a little bit above 50%. And so uh, you're never going to be, you know, oh, wow, 67%. You can't expect to do that. That was just one of those outlier type of games. But you got to be a little bit better offensively than you were against Denver. And I'll see what kind of defensive resistance the Pacers see the next few games. To me, the teams that are in the top five or six defensively in the NBA, they're the ones that have given the Pacers the most challenge. I don't have the, the defensive ratings in front of me, but I at least don't go into – uh, I don't go into Utah, Sacramento, Portland thinking, well, those are the teams like the Magic and the Celtics right. and the Sixers that, that play really, really good defense. So that's another reason to give you a little bit of optimism. And when you mentioned Portland, games on the second half of the back-to-back have been more challenging this season than others. And part of that could be just the style the Pacers play. When you run up and down, and that's one of your strengths, it can catch up to you a little bit maybe in the second half of the back-to-back. So I will be interested to see what happens, not just tonight, but then also in that game Friday in Portland. I get caught looking ahead, too, and notoriously that first home date after a long road trip is the toughest. And if Pacer fans look ahead to see a week from tomorrow night, you get Denver and then Thursday, Philadelphia, and then Friday, Phoenix, and then Sunday, Memphis. Here, I mean, Memphis may be the outlier, but those three coming off that Western road trip at home, it may be great to be back home, but holy hell, J.J. I know. On our podcast, Pat Bowen and I, at the start of the month or maybe the last week of December, we looked at that January slate, and he did the same thing you just did, and I hadn't really fully yes. grasped everything that was in, that they were encountering. It's ridiculous. And I fell off my chair as well. And, and he said at the time, I think it was a, it's a 17-game month, which is also the, the, more, the most games in a month that the Pacers have had in like seven or eight years. And he said, well, 17 games, I think you'd be okay with eight and nine, honestly. And I, you know, eight and nine doesn't sound like success, but then given the opponents, I thought, well, that's not outlandish. Nine and eight would actually be fantastic. And that's why that stretch at home and to win the two games against Milwaukee and one of those games against Boston and then to not let up in any of those um, against maybe the Bulls or the Knicks or the Wizards or the Hawks, that was crucial. I mean, that does set them up to survive, try to survive the next few weeks. And when we had that discussion, we didn't know that Tyrese Halliburton would be injured. So that's just another <laughs> <laughs> Another wrinkle that you have to add to it. I think this team would be happy to just get to the all-star break somewhere in the top six or seven in the Eastern Conference with a healthy roster and then make that push in late February and March. All right. We'll be checking it out coming up later on tonight. I know between your workout and staying on track and getting all this work done prior, yeah, I appreciate you dropping in here today because I know your, your time is precious without question in Salt Lake City. I appreciate you, brother. All right, I appreciate it. Uh, all the Pacers fans, I have a lot of them that tell me they enjoy when I'm on, so I appreciate Hell you. Hell yeah, uh, they do. They the better. Or they're going to get their ass whipped. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I thank you, buddy. Right, thanks, John. All right, All right. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Valley Sports Indiana's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Highline. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline, friend of this show, he is the voice of the Boilermakers, Rob Blackman is with us. So you guys don't go down and spend the night, do you, in Bloomington? You just drive down day of, or am I wrong? Uh, the team uh, team stays the night, yes. They're, they're practicing right now in, in West Lafayette, and then they'll go down tonight. But I no, I will not. I uh, Living in Zionsville, there's no sense to me uh, – to go down there and spend a night when I don't need to, so I will drive down tomorrow. Well, you're going to miss out on a little bit of the fun, right? You get to hang out with uh, with Painter and the, the staff, have a little bit of fun, right? Talk over some right. some basketball. You'll miss out on that. There's not a whole lot of hanging out tonight. Literally, they'll <laughs> get there about 9 o'clock tonight, eat a meal, go to bed. So, yeah, I don't think I'm missing out on that much. Yeah, I, I want to ask you this. I, I was asked this earlier today, Rob, regarding going back to Lincoln in that loss – in Nebraska, what was that more about in your mind? Just you know, Purdue running into an offensive buzzsaw, or was it more uh, something to do with Purdue? Because you, know, you look back at that game; it's not like their defense looked that bad, especially defending the three. There were just a lot of shots made. How'd you view that moving forward before they took the court on Saturday against Penn State? Well, I uh, so Matt Painter on our pregame show Saturday talked about this uh, after they had gone back and looked at the tape. You know, 14 made threes for Nebraska, and the coaching staff felt like 10 of the 14 were well defended. Uh, you know, were right there on the catch, had a hand in the face, and Nebraska just made some awfully tough shots. Uh, so 10 of 14, not too bad. Now, Matt Painter also said in that same interview that what you wanted back were the four wide open threes that where you had defensive breakdowns. Those are the ones that ultimately kill you. You know, if they look, if they're going to make threes and you have a hand in their face and it's well defended, then you just tip your cap and, and you move on. But you had those four open threes that really, you know, really cost you. And more importantly, were the, were the pick sixes, the, the turnovers where Purdue just literally handed the ball to Hoiberg and, and let him run uncontested at the other end for layups. I mean, those are the ones that are those are the crushers because you can control those uh, defensively. As I said, hey, if you're right up there in their in their grill and they they're making threes in your face, uh, tip of the cap. But you can't just give them runouts for easy uncontested layups, and you can't give them wide open threes, uh, especially at home where you know they're going to shoot better. So that ultimately is what that game came down to: the fact that Purdue uh, you just gave them gave them points, and that's you know Matt always talks about that. And it's when our pregame interviews. Uh, literally, I don't even know if I need to ask questions anymore because it's always the same answers. And one of those answers is you can't give them points. You can't give them easy ones. And Purdue did that uh, Tuesday night at Lincoln and, and ended up getting uh, getting a loss because of it. 
So Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilermakers, it is Purdue IU coming up tomorrow down in Bloomington. Rob's with us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So you saw it in Lincoln, second half, Trey Kaufman-Wren and um, Fletcher Lawyer did not start in the second half. They, they got benched. What did you think of their response, not just you know when they came back in finally in Lincoln, but their response that you got and saw against Penn State Saturday? Yeah, certainly much better, more aggressive offensively, but more importantly, a, a renewed effort on the defensive end, uh, something that was lacking really from both of those guys in, in the first half of that game at, at Nebraska. The, the real kicker for Trey Kaufman-Wren is he had just been so good the game prior uh, against Illinois. Season high, 23 points. Um, I think he had four or five rebounds in that game. Uh, was just so good. Uh, against Illinois, and you felt like, hey, man, he's really starting to come on here. And then he had the clunker that he had at Nebraska where he didn't even score a single point. So, uh, But that that was more about on the defensive end, John. I can promise you that. Uh, yes, you want to get points from both of those guys, especially Fletch, because he's a guy averaging 11 points a game for you, third best on the team, uh, I think 11.4 or whatever it is. But you, you, you know Coach Painter well enough. You've been around him long enough to know uh, it, all, it all starts and stops with a defensive end. Uh, and if you are not giving supreme effort on that end, you're probably not going to play a whole lot. And that's, uh, So that, that was the message being sent at, uh, at the start of the second half at Nebraska. And at least from what we saw Saturday against Penn State, it looked like that message was received. Rob Blackman joins us. I, I try really hard because I know it sounds like I'm I'm hard, I'm difficult, I'm Fletcher Lawyer, and I certainly don't mean to be. But it has seemed like sometimes that he he struggles with the balancing act that is offensive-minded but live up to the expectations of your coach and his staff defensively. That is, uh, he would be the first to tell you that as well, uh, that that is where the area of his game that needs improvement is on the defensive end. Uh, now, is it better than it was last year? Yes. Yes, it is. He has made improvements in that area, uh, but still not where he needs to be. And again, he'd be the first to admit to that. The nice thing about Fletcher is he is so skilled offensively that when he is on one of those nights, he's having one of those nights where he just can't miss uh, then you can you can turn a blind eye to the defensive uh, deficiencies, and, yeah. and I'm sp- speaking specifically about you know the game against Tennessee, 27 points in that game out out in uh, Honolulu, or the game against Arizona, quite frankly, in Indianapolis, 27 points, and that was a game where he had four steals, so he was he actually was pretty good defensively that game. But with Fletch, again, a little bit like, um, and I'm not comp- I'm not, and this is not an apples and apples comparison, so let me say this up front. But a little bit like a Jaden Ivey and a Carson Edwards in that those guys were so good offensively that while they were little, probably a little a subpar on the defensive end on a regular basis, you were okay with it because you know how good they were on offense, that you could live with it. Uh, Fletcher is not to that level offensively yet. Maybe he will get there. But he certainly has nights and is good enough offensively there that there could be nights where maybe he's not as good defensively and you can turn the blind eye to that because you know what he's giving you on offense is, is, is just it's too valuable. You have to have him on the floor. I just think about it from this standpoint, too. When he's going in those games in which you described he's going, that that is you, – you can tell the level of success Purdue is going to have. I mean, he really is a, a pretty significant gauge to what – the rest of the team is doing and how much success they're having in that game. Is he not? 
Uh, typically, I think he's normally a pretty good gauge. Now, it's not fair to put it all at his feet uh, because certainly Purdue has other players that can make or break uh, a game. Uh, but, yeah, it certainly feels like uh, when Fletcher is, is on his A game offensively, man, Purdue, it just feels like is playing at a magical level. And, again, I would, I would hearken back to the Tennessee and the Arizona games, his two best games of the year. Um, where he, like I said, had 27 points in both of those games. When he gets it cooking, and the, and the other nice thing about him, he's such a dangerous three-point shooter. I mean, give credit where credit is due. You know, last year he's a 32% three-point shooter. This year he's a 41% three-point shooter. He has really worked on shooting the ball in the offseason, and it's paid off here. Uh, and that's the other reason you like having him on the floor, because he's such a threat to make the three-point shot. He He automatically gives you spacing offensively because you can't sag off of him. And certainly if he's ball side with, with Zach Eady, there's no way you're sagging off that guy. So he really makes life a lot easier for Zach in that particular instance. So, uh, yeah, give credit where credit is due. Offensively, he's made himself a much more polished three-point shooter this season. Does he still have a ways to go uh, defensively? He does. But, again, it's not, that's not something he wouldn't admit to. He's working on it. And uh, uh, as I said now, you know, three, four times, when he's going offensively, you, you turn a blind eye to the, de- to the defensive deficiency because he's just that good. He is Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilermakers on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Give me a member of that squad that you really want to see get going. And let's just say, for example, tomorrow night in Bloomington would be a nice opportunity for this player to get going. Well, I think Trey Kaufman-Wren probably ends up being the X factor uh, in, in, on, on both ends. Certainly, if he can score the ball, that's a bonus. Uh, if he has the 23-point type of night he had against Illinois, that's a real bonus. But uh, I, I just when I look at Indiana and, and the length and the athleticism, athleticism they have along the front court, uh, you know, Zach Eadie's going to have to guard somebody. Uh, I think he'll guard Khalil Ware, I think. Uh, the fact that Ware can step out and shoot the three, I know he hasn't made a lot of them this year, but he's, he's a, what, 43% or something. Uh, that makes that a tough cover for Zach. So does that mean that Trey Kaufman ends up, ends up guarding him? I, I don't know. I'm not sure how we'll go. But if it's not him, then it's either Renew uh, or Mbako, who last I checked are both pretty salty offensive players as well. Um, so I think Trey Kaufman-Wren probably ends up being the X factor there more defensively than offensively. My guess is Trey's going to probably guard Ware. He's probably going to guard Renew. He's probably going to guard Mbako. Uh, through different parts of the game, depending on which one of those three guys is maybe, uh, you know, having their way on the offensive end, if any of them are, uh, especially in the low post. So I think he's the guy. Uh, and, again, if you get points from him, the trick, of course, is, and, again, this is Coach Painter speak here, if they have, if Indiana has a, has a strategic advantage on you when they're on offense, you have to flip it on them at the other end, right? You have to. You have to find a way to also find your own strategic advantage on the other end when you have the ball. And so that's where Trey Kaufman-Wren can really be valuable. If, indeed, he can have just a little bit of offense tomorrow night, but more importantly, defensively, whomever those three guys I just mentioned, whomever he gets matched up against, that's going to be a huge matchup. Well, and you think about it too, Rob. I mean, last year you would think that maybe in a lot of ways defensively you, you handle it if you're produced similarly than you, you did a year ago. However, Hood Shafino was just such an X-Fasker, especially in a game in West Lafayette last year. And that's where I'm going with this. How much of recent history against IU weighs into this motivation with this group going to Bloomington and what we're going to see tomorrow night? Well, uh, Purdue will be motivated. I mean, look, 
you know, last year, so let's just look at last year's two games. The game in Bloomington, Indiana had 50 points at halftime. Just just embarrassed Purdue on the defensive end. Now, second half, I think they scored 28, 29, but they still won the game. I mean, 50 points and a half, just unacceptable, especially for Matt Painter coach team. And then, you know, the real the, the real kicker, Purdue's ready to celebrate a Big Ten regular season championship uh, last year in Mackey Arena. I mean, they had the confetti ready and everything, and, and Indiana wins that game. So instead of celebrating there at Mackey, we had to wait until Sunday afternoon the next day and watch uh, Northwestern lose on the road at Maryland, and then we could all celebrate sitting on our couch at home, which isn't quite as much fun, by the way, <laughs> uh, celebrating a Big Ten championship sitting on your couch at home. So, and you, you know, you brought up Jalen Hood, Shafino. Yeah. I mean, 30, I think it was thirty-five. Oh, points, he was right? yeah, he was incredible in that game at Mackey. Yeah, unbelievable, unguardable. He was unguardable. Uh, the uh, probably the second best performance. I, no, not probably. It's the second best performance I've ever seen from an opponent. Uh, at Mackey Arena. Evan Turner going for 32 for Ohio State would be the other. But yeah, so I mean those the, not only, I mean those two sting because you're losing to your rival, but in the way that you lost both of those games. And the fact of the matter is, and let's we'll just stick to the facts here. You know, Mike Woodson's 3 and 1 against Purdue. There's only one coach, only one in the country that has beaten Purdue 3 times uh, or more in the last two and a half seasons, and it's Mike Woodson. He's the only guy now, a couple coaches have beaten Purdue twice, but they haven't gotten to three uh, like, like Woody has done. So, yeah, I think Purdue certainly will be. I don't think motivation is going to be the concern tomorrow. I think just can Purdue play well enough to win. Motivation is not going to be the problem going into that game tomorrow night. What did they do with all that confetti last year? <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> I never actually asked. <laughs> Again, because you couldn't. There's no celebration. It's no. not like we all took it home with us and, and poured it on our heads Sunday afternoon, sitting at home. Uh, I don't know what they did. Can you sell it back to the people that sold it to I, you? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe that, you can that, save it that, for that. another confetti type of event, I guess. Maybe. <laughs> well, but but it's in the rafters. Does it just set up there in five-gallon buckets <laughs> until you need it again? I don't know. I don't know how this works. Well, I mean, can you, is it still up there right now? Could you go check? Not. That again, my I'm I'm dumbfounded. I couldn't tell you. Hell, maybe it's still up there. I, I have no idea. <laughs> oh man, yeah, you're right about that though. Yeah, you, you got to celebrate. You know that sitting on your couch the next day. So man, yeah, just not. It's just it. Look, you're really you you feel fortunate that you're a Big Ten champion, and you're awfully proud of that. <laughs> and I look, I'm just the broadcaster, right? I'm not. I don't coach. I don't play. But it just isn't quite as much fun when you're you're sitting there on your couch rooting for another team to lose so you could be a Big Ten champion, right? Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, Purdue won the league by three games anyway. That that one game did not actually make that big of a difference. But uh, yeah, if if you celebrate sitting on the couch rooting for someone else to lose, that just takes some of the some of the joy out of it. Hey, one final thing. I may have asked you this a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. Give me like the first thing off the top of your head in the the difference in improvement for Zach Eady this season. Uh, passing, uh, and I think in part of that it's not you know it's kind of a fifty fifty deal. He was a willing and and very uh, good passer last year. It just Purdue didn't shoot the ball well. Thirty two percent from three as a team. This year, Purdue's at 40, what, right at 41, I think, percent as a team. So all those open open three-point shooters that he's finding this year when the double teams or the triple teams come, now those shots are going in. 
And so now his assist numbers are going up. His turnover numbers are coming down uh, as well because he's more confident in finding those shooters. Uh, but certainly yeah, his passing, again, it's not, it's not as if he made this huge jump uh, skill-wise passing from one year to the next. It's that now his passes are finding their way into shooters that are capable of making those shots. But, but he certainly is an improved passer, and, and Purdue's been better for it, that's for sure. All right, he's staying in Zionsville tonight, not going down with the team to Bloomington. So, yeah, you're going to stay in Zionsville. Now, what time do you get down there? When are you leaving tomorrow? Uh, so, I will be there at, uh, let's see, we play at 7. I'll get to the team hotel about 2.30 or so to tape the Matt Painter pregame interview. So, uh, yeah, somewhere in there. Ah, all right, well, hey, drive safely. And uh, listen, the other night, you guys were on, uh, you and Bobby were on Sirius XM. I was listening on my way home, and you guys sounded fantastic. Even in that loss in Lincoln, I had to reach out to you because I, I just the, the whole sound of the broadcast, it was uh, in a loss or not, it was a great, it was a great sound, great listen. Um, and uh, I'm going to give you a thumbs up. Job well done. Well, thank you for listening, John. It is appreciated. You got it. Well, I can't listen here locally because crew car wash ripped my antenna off, so I don't get... uh... <laughs> get uh, get the Varsity Network app. That's what I tell <laughs> Got to do that. Hey, safe travels, man, and uh, we'll do it again soon, Rob. Thanks, man. Okay, see you, John.